Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The most famous black African in Tudor England is John Blank, who is depicted as a trumpeter in the Westminster Tournament Roll of 1511, which is held by the College of Arms, and who also features in account books of the period. John Blank was a musician at Henry VII and Henry VIII's courts and was well rewarded by them. We know one or two other things about him too. His discovery, originally by Professor Sidney Anglo, was made famous by Dr. Miranda Kaufman's book of 2017, Black Tudors, The Untold Story. A year earlier, Miranda and Michael Ohojuru started the John Blank Project, an art and archive venture inviting historians and artists to respond to this evidence of the first person of African descent in British history, for whom we have both an image and a record. I met them both to talk about the evidence for Africans in early modern Britain, whether John Blank was exceptional, what new things we're learning about him, and why it's important to tell stories like his. Miranda and Michael, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. It's a great pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honour to be on such a prestigious show. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here too. So the work that you have both done, along with some work of others, we want to pay our dues, but the work that you have both done has really brought to the forefront of the public imagination the fact that there were people of African ancestry living, working, thriving in Tudor and Stuart, England. And I'd like to talk a bit about how we know this, <laughs> the sort of evidence that we have, and then you know what we can do with this and how people are reacting to this. So Miranda, what sort of sources do we use to find Africans in early modern Britain? Well, we didn't have censuses. With the numbers, most of these come from parish registers recording baptisms, marriages and burials, which after the Reformation, they start keeping these records very precisely. And we have them surviving from mostly from the Elizabethan period onwards in all sorts of places. And that shows us some adult baptisms of Africans who've arrived recently, baptisms of children, quite often born to mixed race couples, and then burials and the occasional marriage. 
So that gives us a kind of geographical distribution across the country from Edinburgh and Hull through to Plymouth and Truro with larger concentrations in London, Plymouth, Bristol and Southampton, those port cities. And there's also some tax return info because there was a poll tax on aliens. So foreigners had to pay an extra tax. That gives us a bit more detail on some of the populations in places like Southampton. Those are quite patchy, what survives where. And then they appear in letters, diaries, household accounts. So that's quite interesting because then you see servants being paid wages or being bought clothes or shoes. So that gives you some evidence that they weren't enslaved because they're being paid wages. Quite interesting. And then the most exciting evidence, it comes from legal records of court cases. As you know, Susanna, you know, that's where we can often get some real juice on what's going on because somebody's arguing with somebody else, someone's on trial. And interestingly, the Africans in those court cases are always the ones we know of, they are witnesses to a crime or accused crime. They are not being accused of crimes. I think that's quite important. So there we get a recorded voice of somebody, we get more biographical information, we get a bit of drama sometimes. So there's a range of sources and new things are being found all the time. Someone sent me a diary of a Hungarian visitor to London and England who was walking through England and suddenly a black man came out of the forest holding an axe <laughs> he freaked out, but then the man started speaking with a very broad English accent and his expectations were exploded. It's so interesting. And people probably often ask you about the numbers. Why is this a tricky question to put to you? Well, I think numbers is just such a touchstone, isn't it, with immigration? It still is. And sometimes people try and dismiss the Black Tudor presence by saying the numbers aren't big enough to be worthy of our interest. I do remember being asked this question for my master's <laughs> examination. I can't tell you how many Africans there were in Tudor England. I can tell you how many individuals I found evidence of, but that's quite a different thing. So I found evidence of over 200 individuals of African heritage in England and to some extent Scotland in the Tudor period. The earliest one, I think, is 1501 through to obviously 1603 when Elizabeth dies. For my doctoral thesis, I actually carried on into 1640 and found another sort of 150 for that period before the civil wars. And new exciting research is going on right now to delineate the Black Stuart presence more broadly as well. So we've got numbers in the hundreds, but those are just when the individual encounters the authorities where they write things down. And sometimes individuals' ethnicities are not recorded in the records that we have. So it would be fair to say that the numbers that we see represented, people we know by name in the records, is probably the tip of the iceberg because people either need to have become Christians, they need to be baptised, they need to have for some reason had some encounter with authorities and just the vast majority of people who ever lived that didn't happen to them. So it could represent a tiny sliver. We just don't know. Well, quite a lot of people got baptised or buried, I think. I wouldn't want to like overstate the numbers, but there clearly are more than we have the records for today. Yes, I know. I was thinking that it might have been possible for people to, in their in a faith that was not Christian. But that's an interesting question. I'm not sure how easy that was. I mean, and I think that's part of the reason why some of the adult Africans do get baptised is because they it's their sort of passport to a place in the community. I encountered some of the sort of Jews in Tudor London because they had African servants and 
those Jewish families like Hector Nunez's family, they're going to church. They have to go to, you get fined if you don't go to church and they're buried in Church of England records. So there clearly are other religious practices existing and there's evidence of that for the Jews as well. But in terms of conforming in your society, church attendance doesn't equal Christianity, but it's there. Michael, why do you think there's been a kind of resistance to believing in this black Tudor presence at this stage in the 16th century and the 17th century? It's all about the default, the norm. If I personalize a little bit in terms of black cowboys, I didn't believe there were any black cowboys. When I saw that black cowboy in blazing saddles, I thought they were mocking, you know, they're having fun. But when you look at the stats, and you look at the history, the reality, 25, 30% of the cowboys were black or brown people because you don't see it. It's not there. So this is why when people cannot imagine it because it's been eliminated, it's hard to imagine. Can you imagine William Tell with black people in that? I just, I can't get my head around that. But then when you see Robin Hood with a black fried tuck or black figures and people get frustrated, upset, annoyed by it. But the reality is they were there. The problem is, it's what we see, the normality of it. It's very white, these Robin Hood and William Tell stories. They were, the cowboys were white. There were no black and brown people there. I was intrigued or interested when you talked about the numbers. People said, well, how many were there? I have to say to you, I don't know, but does it matter? They were there. If it was tens, hundreds, thousands, that's the point. They were there. They had an impact. They were part of society. So in terms of why is the resistance, I think it's just because people, it's not their normality. It's not the default. If they say to the drama with a black figure, and, oh, that's not normal. That's because they used to see black people being marginal or peripheral. But they were there. They were part of the cause. And that's reflected in many of the pictures we see of black people in the period. They're marginal. They're on the edge. The picture isn't about them. It's about, I was going to say, the white people. It's about the majority. It's about the elites. And they were just supporters. So who's going to make a big fuss about them? It's only me and people like me and we now look back and say, wow. We've exhausted all the Medici inventories. We've looked at all the court records of Henry the Seventh, Henry the Eighth. And we've exhausted what we know about the main characters. This is us going back and finding the other characters. We call it history from below. We're looking back. It's an academic exercise. The fact that you're teasing something out, something's hidden. You're making it manifest, making it real. So I think, yes, people in the past have fought against it. But the reality now, for academics, it's more fun to go into the archives. But also, our eyes are open to the past now in a bigger way. The work that Miranda's done and Onyeka have done to expose or reveal these people, people are ready to understand, to look into it. And then my project builds on that, on what they've opened in people's minds to go on a bit of a journey. So your project is the John Blank Project, and perhaps he is the African that most people, if they have heard of an African at a Tudor court, it's going to be of John Blank, the black trumpeter. Now, let's talk about the evidence we have of him. Is he the first African to be pictured in English art? He's the first black African we have in British history who we have both a picture and a record of. I, I caveat it by saying we believe him to be the first. I'm sure there are others out there, but in terms of that visual record, as Miranda indicated, the picture is so important. I remember when we had David Osogo come in one of our conferences, 
and he was talking about the BBC and he talked about an expression which lived with me, the tyranny of images, the tyranny of images, no picture, no presence. I put it to you guys. If Holbein had not done those images, we would not be talking about the Tudors today. It's those pictures, those images. These are images that had a presence. That's what makes John Blank special. The fact that image, we know he's there. I remember when we did Image in Reality in Black Africans Renaissance Europe when we started that. Randa was frustrated because I looked at the Black King by the fact that I had many, many images, hundreds, powerful, wonderful, multicolored images. Miranda had these two small images. Do you remember, Miranda, your frustration? Yeah, your PowerPoint was a lot prettier than mine. I had lots of very boring-looking documents in manuscript, and you, <laughs> you had all these wonderful pictures of Black Magi. So, but going back to the manuscripts, in terms of the records we have for John Blank, so the first we have is a pay slip from 1507, don't we, Michael? And he appears in the Royal Household Treasurer's accounts when his wages are being paid on a regular basis from... 1507 through to, I think, 1512 is the last we hear of him. But that 1512 record is the most exciting one because it's when Henry VIII buys him a wedding outfit. And Michael, I'm sure, will tell you about the fantastic stuff that's been done with that recently. And then 1511, we have the Westminster Tournament images, the funeral accounts as well. So within the same sort of set of accounts, he's bought clothing to wear to Henry VII's funeral, black, and then Henry VIII's coronation, some nice red. Or was it scarlet? It was scarlet, because scarlet is higher status cloth than red cloth. These records can be double-edged, you know. At the National Archives, they just found a 1488 John Blank. And he was a footman to Henry VII. Now, this blows a hole in our 1507 John Blank, the trumpeter. This 1488 John Blank, how do you get from one to the other? Is that possible? And I have to admit, this is where I have an imagination failure. Not possible. My John Blank that I've built up working with yourself and other historians, and then to have this other John Blank to come from the record. What can't speak can't lie. Every other day, historians curse the unimaginative people of the past who keep on calling their children the same name. Please, if only each individual in history had a completely unique name, that would make our lives so much easier. I mean, it seems particularly in this case, I mean, John Blank surely is the Tudor equivalent of John Smith or John Doe. And the fact of the matter is that you've also got another theory from Emma Cahill-Moron, that it's, he's actually Juan de Salonia. So identifying John Blank before he's John Blank is difficult. But it's what's unusual about him, it seems to me, is that you have an image, but you have him in multiple sources as well. That's really wonderful because you, you can kind of triangulate. Yeah, and of course, John Blank, some people have said, well, it was John Blanc, you know, white, and it being a play on words that this dark-skinned man is being called John White. It's a nickname that could have been used for many people. We've seen it in Italy, we've seen it in France, Spain, Juan Blanco. It's a name. I've never put it like John Smith before, but I guess you're right. It is a kind of a John Smith for a black person. But the thing that makes our John Smith blank specialist, because we've got that record and that picture, the fact he was paid, we can triangulate and say, this must be him. 
The most exciting piece of evidence is his petition for a wage increase. And I think that might be because that's what we found last, wasn't it, Michael? Historians of music at the Tudor court had always known about this petition. It was in these, there's a massive sort of dictionary of Tudor musicians that's sort of multi-volume. And they had it in there, but they hadn't attached the significance that he was the black trumpeter. And once you read this wage petition in that context, it's really quite special it's almost cheeky, you know, it's how to get a salary rise 101. Wait for a colleague to die and then ask the boss if you can have their wage as well on top of your own. <laughs> I love the fact he said he wanted backdated as well. It's a wonderful document. You get some sense of his, I don't want to say his arrogance, no, his confidence in his value that he brought to the court. And when you put that together with the fact that Henry gave him a present, so he must have been valued. Tell Susanna about the wedding clothing recreation. That's brilliant, that, because we found another document. It's a combination of the tailor's bill for sourcing the material and then putting it together. So we can see one document where Henry tells the great wardrobe to give the bonnet and the cloth. And then another document shows how the cloth has been reworked to make this garment. It's a brilliant garment. It's quite distinguished looking. And if I go a little bit further, it's purple. And I guess I've got to say this. If there are any black people out there, for black people, purple is the colour. But there's also something interesting in the Tudor period. I mean, there were two things I noticed having looking at that document. One is that actually his name there is spelt B-L-A-K and B-A-L-C, but also that he's got a doublet of black velvet. That's really expensive. Black is really expensive to make at the time. Velvet is very high status. And then purple, as you say, violet cloth. Generally speaking, the only people who are allowed to wear purple are royal. So this must be something to do with him being, I guess, the royal trumpeter. But still, it's really, really high status. Yeah, no, I have this sense about him. If I go a bit further, let my imagination run wild. We've discussed this many times, Miranda. Henry VIII was a bit of a musician. I have the idea of him jamming with his trumpeters, because they would have been multi-instrumentalists. So I had this sense of he would be part of the king's entourage. Having said that, how intimate, how close you can get to Henry, how much he would allow you to be fully chopped your head off, I don't know. But certainly, I would seem to have that ability to feel at ease with the king in terms of he was a musician and he played with the king and knew how to literally put the king up front when he's playing his music. So in that, a special kind of relationship with him. I've got no evidence of that. But you know, if you look at other musicians around the court and other parts of Europe, that relationship was there. One more thing on him. I read the other day, again, Emma Cahill-Moron's work, that there's a man called John Blank who is the master of one of the new ships of the Tudor Navy, the Mary Imperial, in April 1514. And I thought, is this the same person? So I wondered, you know, it feels like there's so much new work coming out, new leads being found, that you've really sort of started something here. Well, that's exciting because that's very much when he disappears from the Tudor court record. And I think I was hypothesizing that he might have died because that's when they go to war. There's the Battle of Flodden, there's the Battle of the Spurs in 1513. So trumpeters were used on the battlefield and there was a fire in the Palace of Westminster in 1512, I think, as well. But I'd much rather he got promoted to go to sea. That's much more exciting. But that's so thrilling. That's what I always wanted was for people to go forward and find more and discuss it and have different ideas about what it all means. I mean, that's the dream. Let's talk about some other people in a second, because one of the things that Onyeka Nubia points out on your website is that we are in danger of making John Blank into an exception. 
How would you respond to that, Michael? I blow hot and cold. One, I want us to celebrate the Black Tudor. There's a Black trumpeter here. Wow, what a great guy. He's exceptional. On the other hand, calm down, Michael. He was an ordinary man. He was a trumpeter in the court of Henry. There were other trumpeters there. There were other Black people in the court. There were other Black people across Europe, in the French court, in the Medici court. So it's nothing special. So we should normalize him. The thing that does motivate me, though, is to get other people to think like that, that they would look at the image and say, oh, yeah, so what? There's a black person in Henry's court or in a a French court at the time. We're a long way away from that now. But in the 10 years Miranda and I have been working together on this, we've come a long way. The fact we're here today talking about it says something about the journey we're on. We're not there 100%, and this question of exceptional between normal There'll be an ongoing debate, and let's keep going. The other sides of, nah, there's no chance. There's no black people in Tudor time. What are you talking about? We've moved on now. People have this like, well, how many, and what did they do? That's a different argument. People's minds have been open enough to accept. Whether they expect it, that's the next step. We're not there yet, but we're a long, long, long way along the path to expecting it. We see it now in literature, in academic books, in novels, in, in fiction. In school books, there are stories of black people, trumpeters and black seamsters. So it's getting there. We still got a long way to go, but we're getting there. And I just just want to finish on this point. As long as we stay woke, you know, we don't shut our minds. We're open to accepting these things. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Miranda, could you remind us of some of the other people that you have discovered in your work, people of colour living at this time? Because it would be 
so wonderful to kind of have that sense of the fullness of experience that we know something about. Well, I'm always anxious about the word discover, and especially in the context of what happened when the Tudors discovered different parts of the world and the Europeans at this time. I think I would always emphasise that I'm part of a wider body of scholarship of people researching this. And some of these figures have been known probably before I was born in some circles of scholarship. And I do owe a debt to the Black and Asian Studies Association and Marika Sherwood, who set me on this research path in terms of sharing some of these sources with me. And Imtiaz Habib's work was also quite foundational in this field. And obviously Onyek and Nubia has been working in it for a long time. Anyway, there's the credits. But sticking with Henry VIII from the Navy, another really interesting character is Jacques Francis, who was a salvage diver who was sent down to try and retrieve some of the guns lost on the wreck of the Mary Rose. And in terms of how far we've come, you know, that story is really told now when you go to see the wreck of the Mary Rose in Portsmouth and has featured in several kind of stories. And again, excitingly, they've now analysed skeletons found on the Mary Rose. And this is since I published my work on Jacques Francis. They've found skeletons and analysed them and found that some of the men working on the Mary Rose had African ancestry, which sort of adds another layer to the picture. They also found a cowrie shell on board, which was used as currency in West Africa. And so that shows that kind of movement of people and things around the world as well. Talking of moving around the world, there's Diego, who sails around the world with Francis Drake. And he encounters him in Panama in 1572 and comes back to Plymouth and lives in Plymouth for several years in Drake's household and then sails around the world. Unfortunately, he doesn't actually make it home again and dies of arrow wounds in Indonesia. But another just dynamic character, one crying out for a more exciting period drama than some of the ones that gave us this idea that Tudors were an all-white past, but really a canny kind of operator who forges an alliance between Francis Drake and the Maroons in Panama, who were escaped enslaved people who had been enslaved by the Spaniards and then set up their own settlements in the hinterland. I mean, there are so many big stories. I think one figure that I encountered that I don't think anyone had found before was a man called Edward Swarthy, who worked for a man called Edward Winter in Gloucestershire as a porter in the 1580s and 90s. And he's quite interesting in that he's one of these stories where you find him in the Court of Star Chamber in a legal record. And it is recorded that he actually whips a white man in the same household, a higher status white man called John Guy, who in another strange twist of fate goes on to become one of the first colonial governors of Newfoundland. There are so many stories. I haven't mentioned any women yet, have I? But uh, we can get on to them. I want to ask you about women. But first of all, what's so interesting about that last story is, of course, for all of us, it turns on our head ideas that we subsequently have because of the fact that we have the beginning of race-based enslavement starting in this period of time. And so I guess I want to ask a two-part question. Partly, you know, one of the suggestions has been that Jacques Francis or Jacques Francois was enslaved. And I want to ask your thoughts on that and the question about whether it was possible to be enslaved in England at the time. And also about what we should understand really about the nature of racism in this period and whether it is something that is generated by the practice of race-based 
slavery or whether we can see it prior to that point? Two huge questions there. There we go. <laughs> How long have you got? So let's start with a small case study first. Jack Francis's experience in the court records, there are several Italians because he is working for an Italian salvage operator in Portsmouth. And there are several Italians who testify in the court case. This is the High Court of Admiralty asserting that Jacques Francis is enslaved because they want his testimony to be discounted. They don't like what he has to say. It's not backing up their side of the story. And Jacques Francis himself, whenever anyone gives evidence in these cases, you have a brief description, a name, their age, where they're from. And his says that he is a famulus, which is a Latin word meaning member of a household linked to the same root as the word family, as opposed to if he had been enslaved, the word would have been service. I always like to go with how people assert their own identities. So the people at the time who were calling him enslaved are doing so for a very particular agenda. But whether he had been enslaved previous to his arrival in England is another question and quite possible. There is this distinction in English law that... Whereas in Southern European countries like Portugal, Spain and Italy, who had much larger African presences by this time and had also, particularly Spain and Portugal, had not only been trading enslaved people within their countries, but had also begun trafficking them across the Atlantic. Plenty of Africans were enslaved in those European countries. But in England, where we had, as we said, much smaller numbers, there's no statute law, there's no legislation passed by the British Parliament actually ever delineating the status of Africans in England. When you get to the mid to late 17th century, English colonies abroad start passing their own legislation. The British Parliament never actually does that. And there are also examples of test cases, you might say, within the Tudor period, particularly Hector Nunez, a Portuguese man who attempts to enslave a man he calls an Ethiopian in London, has to admit in his petition to the Court of Requests that actually there is no law in England by which he can force this man to keep working for him. And there's another famous ruling, 1569, where it is ruled that the air of England is too pure an air for slaves to breathe in, which is cited as late as the 1770s when the question is still subject to legal discussion in the Somerset case which you'll need a whole other podcast on. I, in my work, do conclude that Africans were not legally enslaved in Tudor England. Whether in practice you can still be enslaved in England today, it's not legal, but it's possible. And it unfortunately does occasionally happen. So whether Africans, especially Africans, I think, who were brought here by people who may have owned them somewhere else, if they've come in the household of a merchant or an aristocrat from Europe who has already enslaved them somewhere else, whether they're then treated as free people or paid wages once they're here is open to question. There is one will where a European person left an African in their will as property. But actually, more often, we find these wills where Africans are left legacies. So they're left money or they are not the property being left. They are being given gifts in the wills of their former employers. So that's slavery. With racism, I think that's an even more complicated question because at least with the law, it tends to be written down fairly clearly. And I don't think this is a question that I addressed very clearly in my book. And I think it requires a lot more deep 
discussion and also kind of interaction between historians and students of literature because my work very much was focused on these quite dry sometimes historical records of things like parish registers and law documents. It's always hard to argue from an absence, but I think when you look at the court records describing Edward Swarthy whipping John Guy, there is an absence of racial commentary on that. More than 20 men witnessed that event and none of them say any kind of racial comments about Edward Swarthy that make it... They are outraged to see this happen, but they're outraged because he manages the ironworks. It's the belittlement of a high-status person by a less high-status person. And there's no racial language in the way that that's discussed. Of course, since I've read the book, I now know more about intersectionality and it doesn't have to be either or, does it? So maybe there's a implicit element of racial prejudice in that. I don't know. But as a historian, it's hard to argue from an absence. I think where we do get much better evidence for how people feel and think about each other is in literature and not just Shakespeare's plays, figures like Othello or Aaron the Moor in Titus Andronicus and so many more. There are many, many more black characters in early modern drama and literature than most people know, but also in sort of travel accounts of people visiting Africa, West Africa, Morocco for the first time, accounts of voyages like Francis Drake's voyages. But I don't think there's a uniformly negative impression. I think one of the things quite interesting about Hacklett's accounts of early trade with West Africa is these are interactions between merchants. They're both merchants. They have to act as equals in order to exchange goods. And the goods they are exchanging are predominantly not human bodies. They are exchanging gold, ivory, they call it elephant's teeth, which I love, or uh, Melagueta pepper. And there's a specific instance in about 1620, an English merchant called Richard Jobson is offered some women, some African women in Gambia to buy. And he says, no, we do not exchange any that have our own shapes. And obviously that's a mindset that is not universal and then becomes quite quickly completely the opposite of what the British then carry on to do and trafficking over 3 million people across the Atlantic from the 1640s onwards for about 200 years. But at that moment, that man said that thing. I really hope that historians and students of literature will be able to bring this together because for a long time, Shakespeare scholars were way ahead of historians on this because of Othello and these other characters. And they've been analysing the ideas about race in early modern Britain way before any historians bothered to think about it, but they often were analysing it without the knowledge of the black presence in Tudor England. So they were talking very theoretically about, I, well, you know, for a historian, there is so much ambiguity in literature. But now that we have the documentary evidence of actual Africans living in Tudor England, and we can then read that alongside the literature, I think we're in a better position than we've ever been before to answer or further explore ideas about race in Tudor England. That's so helpful. Michael, you were nodding along whilst Miranda was talking. I felt like you had things you wanted to add. I always see this question of race in the period. as kind of a cognitive dissonance in terms of it's two-faced. You've got stories of them coming back from trips to Africa, the West Africa, and seeing kingdoms, the glory of the gold that they find there in the wide streets and the open and clean cities and how the lack of violence and how it was a good place to be. Yet at the same time, you've got people saying, these are ungodly people living without laws. And for me, the white explorer 
he goes with his own eyes and sees the world as he wants to see it. And he defines it in his terms. So if he sees the gold and the success of a city, but you could go and say, well, look, hang on, these people, they sacrifice human beings. They don't live without laws. This idea of they don't work. The fact that they go into the jungle to find food and come back, they forage. This idea of working for food and dressing and all the things that they burden themselves with to survive in their society, in terms of dress, in terms of digging in the field for food, it's very different in Africa. And they bring their burden. It wasn't always a positive interaction with white people for Africans. White frustration stems from the white explorers and travelers come with their eyes and they define what is good and what is not. Petrus Findry and his people, they used to talk about the Egyptians. They were about as intelligent as a 13-year-old boy or a laborer. These are the people who built the pyramids. They said they had no literature because they bring themselves there and they go looking for themselves. And because they can't see it, well, it's not here. These people are barbarian. Look what they did, the Egyptians specifically. And then they compare them to a 13-year-old schoolboy or an English laborer. And one last point, Aristotle, when he talks about barbarians, these people, they live without laws and they have no history. They have no rules of dress when they clearly did, and they do. But because his kind couldn't see it, they were barbarians. So that is my frustration. These white people come there with their standards or their ideals, and they go looking for them. But their imagination is closed because they're looking for themselves. The weirdest thing about that is not only are they doing that, but they've also got their classical writings on Africa. So they've got their Aristotle, they've got their Pliny, they've got their Herodotus, and they are looking for that in Africa. That's their guidebook. And even if they observe something completely different... They don't quite believe it and they like to reiterate all the classical stuff, partly to prove their learning, I think, but the kind of book learning, the classical texts, which are where you get all those crazy stories about dog-headed men and men with one foot, you know, the kind of things that end up in the Chronicles of Narnia, Dawn Treader. That's all from classical texts and they kind of reiterate that even though it's not there. In fact, when Leo Africanus's book, The Description of Africa, is published in English, it's originally published in Italian in the 1520s. And then when it's published in English, you know, a bit behind the times in, in 1600, the editor, the translator, John Pori, feels the need to add his own introduction. So Leo Africanus, we think, was from Africa. He certainly has travelled a lot in North Africa. He has his own slightly more prejudiced ideas about sub-Saharan Africa within his text, I think. But John Pori puts his own rather large preferentiary introduction saying, this is all the stuff I know about Africa that Leo Africanus left out. And it's mostly everything he's ever cribbed from all the classical texts. Yeah. And so like this actual eyewitness account is then prefaced with, but let's not forget, we must honour the classical texts. Yes, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because that, of course, speaks to scientific method at the time, so far as it exists. You mentioned earlier, though, Miranda, that we hadn't yet talked about the women. So let's mention a few women before we finish our conversation, because you found some amazing stories of women. And I'm also struck by the fact that particularly, it seems, with the women, that you're having to work particularly from scraps. And I wonder how that had been and what the challenges are with doing that, really. It's all detective work, and I think it's not just the women that are scrappy. <laughs> I think we know more about Mary Phyllis than we do about reasonable black women, for example. 
And again, you know, those tricky records, you know, since I published my book, I think I found a burial record for Reasonable Blackman, but it's before his children die of the plague. And therefore my whole bit going, oh, it must have been so tragic for him to witness his children dying of the plague may not have been true at all because he may have been already dead. Can we just be clear also for those who haven't read your book that this is a name given to somebody because someone hearing that for the first time might write be reasonably themselves having their mouths wide open. So let's be clear that this is a name. Well, even then there's some debate about whether his name was John Reason or whether he was Reasonable Blackman. The scrappiness of the sources leads there to be some conjecture about this. And some book group sent me a note on what reasonable meant in Tudor English, and I can't remember what they but it didn't mean what it means now. It meant somebody who was able to reason, so somebody who had the intellectual capacity of reason. So that's even more interesting. I mean, I think I glossed it as being, you know, if you're a, he was a silk weaver, so if you're a businessman selling, having reasonable prices is always good, but... I don't know. Anyway, back to the women. So, I mean, Mary Phyllis, who we have a baptism record from 1597, but what's special is that this particular parish, St. Botoph's Oldgate, had an amazing parish clerk who wrote a sort of diary, a memorandum book of what everything that was going on in the parish for about 40 years. And he gave a much more detailed description of her background who her father was, who she'd worked for before, who she's working for now, how she had behaved at the baptism. And that allowed me to piece together a bit more of a backstory of who she was. Because it's quite interesting. She's 20 years old when she gets baptised. And we know she's been living in London for most of her life. She came over when she was a small child. And that raises lots of big questions about why wasn't she baptised straight away? What was going on there? One of my suppositions was that it was because she wanted to get married. And if you want to get married in the Church of England, you have to be a baptised Christian. And there are other examples where you'll find a baptism record for an African and then their marriage a month later, just long enough for the bans to be read. And I think that speaks to the female experience in early modern Britain, Europe, the world in general, that marriage was a route to get a level of financial security compared with being a single woman, which is actually what Mary Phyllis was doing as well, because by the time she's baptised, she's working for a seamstress called Millicent Porter, who the only other record we have of her is that Millicent Porter was accused of adultery. But so Mary Phyllis had originally worked for a much more wealthy household, the Barker family, who lived within the city. And then she's moved to a more lowly household where she may have been the only servant to Millicent Porter. And again, I'm wondering whether that was almost to give herself an apprenticeship to learn the art of dressmaking so that she would then have a trade whereby she could support herself. So options for women in general in Tudor England were much more limited than for men. And well, apart from the oldest profession, which actually I found very little evidence of African women engaging in sex work, and there is extensive archival material for tracing the lives of sex workers in Tudor England because they are often being brought to court and punished for what they're doing. And Duncan Sackeld has done an extensive study of the London Bridewell records. And I don't think he found any African women in those particular records. Anne Cobby, who shows up in my book and is, I think in your review, pointed out Susanna was a black Stuart, not a black Tudor. Anyway, the Blind World records actually show more evidence of African men 
being customers to English prostitutes than the other way around, which is also quite fascinating because it shows that they had enough disposable income to visit a brothel. So there were limited options. I actually had Duncan Sarkard on as a contributor a couple of years ago, and he found one woman called Black Luce, also referred to as Luce Bainham or Lucy Negro, who he thinks is a brothel madam based in Clerkenwell. But that is the only instance that I can think of. But I remember that. Well, I'm not completely sure that she was African. Well, it's entirely possible. That's, and that's the interesting thing, actually, because often people talk about attitudes to race with some of the things that I've come across in my work is to do with witchcraft and talk about, you know, seeing the devil as a black man. It doesn't mean a black man, as we would say it. It means a man dressed in black. And so you have to sort of untangling how people use language and what they meant by it is one of the challenges, I imagine, of your work with all this stuff. I mean, the fact that we have to really think and look at the records and interrogate what someone's ethnicity is shows how difficult the records are in terms of trying to pin that down. Although I did find one reference to a real African, I think, in the discovery of witchcraft, because there's this crazy story where this woman gives birth to a brown baby and her husband gets very angry because apparently they have an African servant. And so he's jumped to the obvious conclusion. But her defence is, I was just thinking about him at the moment of conception. Which actually would work under this understanding of the time. And it's in the Bible as well, that whatever you're thinking about at that moment will have a massive impact on what comes out. Although if I was the husband, I don't think I'd be that much happier <laughs> to know that my wife was thinking about it. But maybe a neat way out. Can we wrap this up, Michael, by thinking about why this matters? Why is this important that we look at the past and have these kind of conversations about what did this language mean and what traces do we have of these people? Susanna, this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, because this goes back to history and humanities, why we study history. And it's really important that we understand history in the sense that history gives us a worldview. You know, we understand people's religion, languages, we understand their history. And then in understanding the world, not just from our own narrow point of view, as I talked about area about these explorers who went looking for themselves when they sought the world, and when they didn't see it, they came back with some weird views of the world. You've got a knowledge of the world and how it works, but then you question it. Be specific in John Blank. We know a little bit about John Blank. Like, where did he come from? So then the question, where might he have come from? He came with Catherine Aragon when she came over to marry Henry's brother Arthur. That's pretty sensible. But equally, he could have come from North Africa. He could have come from North Africa via Venice. That's a, certainly a possibility. Now, it's the critical thinking that makes us challenge those two views. And that's what makes us better, better as human beings. That sounds a bit grand. But we don't accept nonsense. If I said John Blank, he's probably an Aborigine. Now you'd say, hang on a sec. That doesn't make sense because Cook wasn't there. That's a centuries later. There'd be so many ands that you'd break down the argument. But the fact you can challenge that with your worldview, challenge your imagination through your critical thinking. And that's why it's important that we look at John Blank and we analyze him. Fundamentally, we don't just accept nonsense. We use our knowledge to critically challenge it, but at the same time, keep our imagination open. And that's what makes us better as human beings to understand one another how we exist, how we can cooperate, 
and work together. I believe in the ultimate good of humanity and the John Blank project to make us better people. But really, it's clearly just thinking about who you are, how you fit into the world, and not accepting the world just as it is. You challenge it from what you know. And you have that open mind ready to imagine the other, yet challenge your own thoughts. Well, thank you both very much for challenging me and challenging my listeners a little bit today. People who want to find out more can do a number of things. They can go on to johnblank.com and there you can find out about the project where artists and historians engage with John Blank's history. You must, of course, pick up a copy of Miranda Kaufman's Black Tudors because the other thing I remember calling it in my review, Miranda, was meticulous and extensively researched. And Miranda has also created a free online course, Black Tudors, The Untold Story with Future Learn. Thank you both so much for coming on to Not Just the Tudors. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, and also to my researcher Esther Arnott, my producer Rob Weinberg, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please do consider rating, ranking, bestowing multiple stars and commenting on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.